0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Layla Latif. I'm Hannah Strong.
1: And I'm Adam Woodward.
2: On the show this week, Johnny Knoxville and Co. were older but not wiser in Jackass Forever. Joanna Hogg completes her self-portrait in Souvenir Part 2. And in Film Club, Derek Jarman and Tilda Swinton lament a fading national identity
0: in Last of England.
2: All coming up on Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. No introductions needed for either of you, so we can get straight into it. But uh, we're kind of in a bit of a festival sweet spot. Sundance has just ended. And uh, Hannah, you're about to go off to Berlin, aren't you?
3: Yeah, triumphant returned for the festival after a little um, break due to COVID. So they had a a virtual year last year and it did kind of look like this would be a virtual year too, but they've managed to make it happen. So it's um, a reduced like five days, I think, of premieres and then they're doing a kind of um, couple of days of screenings for the uh, Berlin public and it's all kind of COVID safe. So I think it's 50% capacity um they've put on a lot of press screenings so I feel like they've really organized it quite well um but yeah very excited to go back I love the city I I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast I used to live there so it's very close to my heart and we've got some good stuff in the lineup new Claire Denis new Peter Strickland uh gosh who else um new Francois Ozon which is a kind of reimagining of um the bitter tears of Petra von Kant so yeah lots to dig into and i th- I think I will be saying more about it next week on the podcast or maybe the week after I can't remember when we've scheduled it for but um, but yeah I'm very excited
2: that sounds uh that sounds amazing because you were a little underwhelmed by Sundance weren't you you didn't feel like this was one of the stronger years
3: yeah I think it's just last year was so good last year was kind of the first major um online festival that I felt was a genuine like a success, and, and there's lots of things I saw there that I really liked. So we had pleasure and in the earth and sensor. And then this year, there was nothing that I like absolutely loved. Um, there were things that I thought were pretty good. Uh, Emily the criminal, which is Aubrey Plaza doing credit card scams, was, it was I thought that was very good. Um, and there's this documentary we met in virtual reality, which I really liked as well. But yeah just nothing that kind of really got me going um, which I think you need with these online festivals because you're so kind of you don't have the audience to kind of feed off you're just in your room watching film after film so yeah not I wasn't I wasn't so keen on this year's lineup but um, hopefully Berlin will kind of um, come back swinging and I'll be my appetite will be uh, sated somewhat.
2: Yeah, well, I was thrilled to uh, review for you probably what is going to be my least favorite film of the year, Alice, uh, which was yeah, a low light of Sundance and a low light I think with my life so far. Um, so yeah, higher hopes for for Berlin for you, uh, Adam. What about you? Is there anything coming up that you're really looking forward to? Oh,
1: you have put me on the spot there. I mean, not festival wise. I'm not I'm not doing anything at the moment um, on that front. But yeah, kind of. Been, been feels like it's been a bit of a slow start back into it. Like obviously cinemas are open and by all accounts doing okay, like numbers wise, but um I haven't been out to see too much. I did I did have a lovely um Sunday screening just gone of Paper Moon. Um, nice. I guess in, in, in sort of celebration of uh or, or in commemorance of Peter Bogdanovich, which was the Cine Real Sixteen mm Club. Um so yeah, it was really, really nice to see that. Um with a, with a very very eager audience um and to have you know an actual real working projector kind of in the room with you wearing away um which is quite quite a kind of special um yeah quite a kind of special film and special screening of it um yeah no not, not too much else on the horizon i think just kind of trying to play catch up a little bit with, with things i've missed i'm really really eager to go and see like nightmare alley um, obviously, there's the films we're going to be talking about today. So we're in that almost like pre-award season, like really ramping up. But now is is the time when you're getting like a lot of good releases, and um, and actually some really good smaller stuff is is kind of uh, sneaking in as well. So it's a really good good time to be uh, going to the movies. Well,
2: yeah, it certainly is, and we've got a real broad selection of things uh, this week that we can get into. Uh, so yeah, let's get started with uh, Jackass Forever. Mm-hmm. Celebrating the joy of being back together with your best friends and a perfectly executed shot to the groin, the original Jackass crew returned for another round of wildly absurd and often dangerous displays of behaviour with a little help from some new cast members. So, Hannah, I think anybody that... Uh, follows you knows that you are the resident <laughs> jackass expert, probably of the UK, not just of the you remote know... lies
3: it's is, it's is funny you say that because i got a, a a message the other day from um an editor who wants to commission me and he referred to me as the foremost jackass expert in the uk and you know i've written a book i you know the ed- editor at little white lies that is the proudest moment of my career finally the brand is sticking and people are recognizing me for what i want to be known for um, yeah, yeah i you can commission lo- love your own so that's
2: got to be on it
3: exactly yeah I I love Jackass this is probably my number one most anticipated film of the year I was very upset when it got delayed in September um I had interviewed one of the um cast members though he's actually filming in this one you don't really see him so much in front of the camera um Rob himself for a piece I did for the BBC just as they'd started filming and he was you know he got me really hyped up for it and then I had such a long wait so I was like Vibrating with excitement last night when I went to the press screening, I really was like a kid at Christmas. Um, and what can I say? I mean, I, you know, it it delivered. I was floating on air for the rest of the evening. Not, not the greatest ninety minutes of twenty twenty two. I'd be very surprised if it's beaten, to be honest. <laughs>
2: So what is it that you think that is so special about this? Like, what are the ingredients that come together? I mean, obviously, you've got these people from different backgrounds. Knoxville is an actor. Steve-O is a clown. You've got skateboarders, stunt people. Like, what is it that makes the magic happen for you with Jackass?
3: I think... I So I didn't watch it growing up. So I was, like, banned from watching it because my mum... We didn't have um, satellite at the time, which you needed to watch MTV anyway. But then, you know you kind of i grew up in the age of like um dvds were just becoming a thing so it was all on dvd and you know they'd kind of get passed around at school my mom was like absolutely not no way because i think she was worried that we would watch it and either a try to emulate the pranks or b um it would like melt our brains like some kind of i don't know like hydrochloric acid on small, small soft children brains but um so it was always that kind of that white whale of pop culture and when i went to university i started watching it because it was on netflix and it netflix was kind of just becoming a thing and i I just fell in love i think i was so miserable at the time when i started watching it i was having a really horrible time at university i just kind of reconnected to this idea of having this group of friends who fundamentally you know no matter what kind of hell they put each other through they are the first to kind of run over and like pick each other up and like you know slap each other on the back and kind of give each other a hug and be like oh my god that was so cool and there's this real like sense of love that I think any jackass aficionado will tell you it's not really about the pranks and the stunts which are incredibly impressive and it's clear that Yes, they get hurt a lot, but there's also a lot of thought and a lot of um love that goes into the, all the stupid things they do to each other. Um but there's this like warm, gooey centre, which is how much these guys love each other and they've been going for what, twenty two years now since the series started. Yeah. So that's that's a long time to maintain friendships. And they have for the most part all stayed friends. There's a bit of um, drama with Bam Margera, who's kind of a former um, key star who kind of um, unfortunately has had a lot of problems with addiction, which kind of cast a bit of a shadow over the new film. But then in this new one, you know, there's a sense that, yes, they're older, not necessarily any wiser, but they're so open to kind of bringing in new people to the fold. It isn't, it doesn't at all feel like a click. It feels like, you know, you could go on the set of this film and they'd like trip you up or like get you with the uh, taser and suddenly you would be part of this gang. And it, it feels like you're, you're kind of a participant just watching it. And I think that's something that, you don't get in many films. I think it's something very rare that they've managed to kind of not only create, but create like four times on screen. You know, this is the fourth film over twenty years. Now it's twenty years since um Jackass the movie came out. And I do think that they have shaped modern comedy and even kind of um video culture to such an extent that I can't imagine how these things would look without them. It's impossible to imagine a world where um, something like TikTok is as big as it is without the fact that there's this rich kind of providence um, which all kind of kicked off with Jackass. These are are pre-YouTube guys. These guys are ancient in terms of uh, the modern media landscape. And yeah, I just think it's such a um, rich text beyond the kind of like the obvious amusement of it it, it is quite funny when someone falls over or gets kicked in the balls
2: yeah I did I did I agree with you and I think there was something quite strange after watching all of those kind of uh, indie comedies of, at Sundance of sitting in the cinema a few seats down from you which really enhanced my you know experience because I could hear how hard you were laughing but I, you know really I was like oh this is this is really funny and like laughing with kind of your whole chest. And you know really kind of not just having a titter, but like properly like creasing over, feeling your you know tears in the eyes, funny, but um Adam, what about you? Did you find it just as enjoyable
1: well um <clears throat> i should um I should say that i i've, I've kind of been struck' by the lurgy um so i didn't didn't attend the press screening last night although i I did contemplate going along anyway just as a kind of ultimate like knoxville-esque prank to like <laughs> infect the great and good of uh, uk film media en masse but i no, thought against it um but paramount were very kind and sent over a, a, a screening link so i watched like the first sort of half an hour this morning um just before we started recording although it was probably a bit too early to uh see chris pontius's crown jewels but mm. you yeah, see them a lot it. um <laughs> yeah no i mean you know it, it's it's great I, I kind of just echo what everything that hannah said and it's it's just really nice to sort of um yeah i guess catch up with old friends i suppose and 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 see that they've they've really picked up where they left off certainly with the last movies but even with the uh the the very first film and the and the kind of series that preceded it um you know i was I, i sort of entered my teenage years the the same year that jackass first aired and we we did have mtv and i i did watch it and you know not that me and my friends didn't necessarily go out and like replicate the stunts, but we were massively into you know skateboarding and punk music, and like even the kind of d i y aspects of it i think really influenced us and and going out and like filming ourselves just being teenage boys basically and being idiots and and uh, yeah, I think that's that's ha- had a very it's it's interesting looking back i mean first, it makes me feel very old thinking that this is like twenty two years ago or whatever but it's interesting looking back on that time and realizing how much it did kind of shape the culture and and that kind of um, that kind of experience. And obviously they were older than teenage boys at the time. And it's interesting that now that audience has grown up with them and and they're I mean they're, they're obviously showing their kind of battle scars and showing their age a little bit. There's a there's a there's an interesting thing in this where Johnny Knoxville kind of scene to scene his hair is like he dyed black or just kind of eventually. <laughs> quite a nice shade of salt and pepper gray where he's just like, let let himself age naturally. And and from that moment you do, you do kind of realize that, wow, these guys, they have been doing it this long, you know? And, and as Hannah said, just the fact that they've all remained so close and, and all pushing each other to, um, to these insane heights of physical comedy and, and stunt work is, is, is really kind of, I think there's something quite, quite noble in it. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I'm about the same age as you, Adam, and I watched this when I was, you know, around 12 originally. And I, I at the time, I, it seemed like a bit of a dark portrait of male friendship and that we all these people that just wanted to hurt each other. And, you know, but like that meme of like men would rather, you know, yeah. kick each other in the balls than go to therapy. But for some reason, this one to me really struck me as being like a really sweet portrait of male mm. friendship and actually quite a like a tender
3: masculinity. I don't know what you think. I think, so one of the things that has always like really enamored me with Knoxville and the guys is that the way they embrace um, not only the kind of um, pain and the disgusting and, uh, you know, that kind of like hard, um, well, not a hard line, that fine line between comedy and tragedy, but um, the way they talk about like masculinity and um, homoeroticism has always been very funny to me because they're so, they're, I remember there was an interview with Knoxville probably around the time of the um, third movie where someone kind of said like, oh, you know, um, would you care to comment on like the, uh, the queer subtext in the film? And he was like, it's not subtext, it's just text. Like, <laughs> we, we, know it, we, we know it's like homoerotic. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And I've always thought that is so um, refreshing to see because I think you're right that in the kind of early days of Jackass, there was this like proper lad culture going on and this like, you know, thing about proving how much of a man you are by enduring these feats of great pain and or great, you know, um, uh, inflicting that pain onto other people. But that isn't necessarily what I have seen in the show and I think that in Jackass Forever it's more kind of um, overt than ever how much this is um, about hanging out with your friends and doing and doing stupid things and the stupid things are just a pretense to hang out with their friends and to be given millions of dollars by Paramount. But one of the things that I thought was so yeah. charming about this, and obviously they've got to bring in new guys now because they're all pushing fifty and they can't keep doing this forever. Um because I think they wouldn't get the medical insurance. But so they bring in this kind of little group of newbies. So we've got um <laughs> a guy called Poopsie. Um this is how they're credited as well. <laughs> so and then there's a guy called uh, Zach and um, this guy Jasper, this guy Eric, there's a woman now called Rachel Wolfson. Uh, but the absolute MVP of kind of the new players is this guy called Comston Wilson, whose nickname is Dark Shark, and they just refer to him as Dark Shark. And I believe he is um, Jasper's dad. Yeah, I Jasper's think, dad. Yes, and he says he's,
2: uh, he's been in prison in the past. He's been in gangs, but he <laughs> cannot handle animals.
3: <laughs> insects insects, and animals. He doesn't like insects and animals. So obviously the thing they do is, you know, it, uh, stick a helmet with a spider in on him. And um, just that kind of like familial... Um, connection that we see between him and uh, Jasper within the film is so funny and so sweet. And it is like a father son bonding thing. You know, he's brought his dad into this world with all his little mates and they're all hanging out. And there's an amazing moment where um, Dark Shark has done this like skit and it just kind of cuts to Jasper who says, you know, it's just embarrassing for me. I came out of that man's penis and, like, just so, (laughs) so straight-faced. And I just, you know, these are incredibly uh, silly things that they're doing a lot of the time. And it does scratch that, like, little... Neanderthal itch in my brain to just like see i think the same reason that people loved watching Buster Keaton fall over and have loved watching Mr Bean fall over throughout history there's some kind of little animal part of our brain that just like reacts to that but yeah i just was really um overjoyed that the kind of chemistry is not only still there but it really extends to these people who weren't part of the original crew because i was a bit like concerned are they just bringing in people um to kind of you know make it feel more diverse because it was at first it was just a group of white guys and now they've got you know um a few black members that they brought in and obviously a woman and I was a bit like oh is this you know (laughs) jackass is doing a diversity push but everyone fits in so seamlessly it is just like they could have been there all along and there's a very sweet moment where poopies and zach are talking and they say like um ah, oh, you know i used to watch this as a kid, and now I'm here, and Eric Andre uh <laughs> who's a kind of a guest star, says the same thing, and it's just that idea of growing up with something and then becoming that thing, I think is so it's so rare that that uh gets to happen in life. I think I'm probably one of the few people who's been able to kind of grow up wanting to do something and then get to do it, so yeah, it's you know there's something incredibly tender and incredibly um wholesome about it beneath beneath the many layers of sweat and piss and blood and vomit
2: I I gotta say Hannah it's it's actually also incredibly tender and lovely to hear you talk about something that you really (laughs) love so much but um yeah it it almost feels you know I assume it's five across the boards but let's get some (laughs) scores on this um in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect
3: I in, yeah I, I couldn't have been more excited I, I think I'm gonna go five five four and the four is purely because my one reservation and it's been a reservation throughout Jackis is that they do use animals in quite a lot of stunts and less so in this film but it's still there and I do think it doesn't it, they don't need it because they're funny enough without all the animal things and I, I just don't feel it's fair on the animals because they are put in positions of stress you know people are picking them up and the baiting the scorpions and the snakes that is my one kind of caveat is I wish they hadn't kind of gone with that um there's a there's a scene with the bear which is very funny and I think the bear is probably uh, you know it's it's obviously a tame bear it's probably an actor bear um so that I'm kind of like you know if it's an animal that has kind of training okay I kind of can make my peace with that a little bit more but when it's like a scorpion or a snake or a spider they don't know what's going on and there's still an animal that like has thoughts and feelings and I just think it's a bit cruel um but apart from that you know that's my one caveat and I definitely will be seeing it again and yeah I love the boys happy they're back and I think it is the most fun anyone will have in a cinema this year. Wow well, that is uh <laughs> um,
2: I, th- I think it's interesting that you love johnny knoxville and he got serious brain damage in this but you're more concerned about the scorpion mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> yeah because uh, that's Knoxville's choice <laughs> yeah, fair enough adam what about you
1: well i'm gonna i might reserve my scores until i've seen the whole thing but um H- hannah i was gonna ask you i know johnny is one of your boys <laughs> uh, are any of the other like og cast any of your boys or are they all your boys
3: they're in spirit they're all my boys I mean uh, obviously Spike Jones is one of my boys I mean, get a little Spike cameo in this which I was very happy about and Tony oh, the, Hawk's one of my boys the, the, um, cam-
1: the cameos are delightful in this I, I mean even just oh. within the first sort of 10 minutes there's like yeah just people that you don't necessarily see all that much uh, you know these days who were much bigger stars or much bigger presence in that kind of um, you know, in, well within the culture kind of 20 years ago it's, no, it's nice uh, being reminded of them as well
3: Uh, But yeah, I will say that Dave England was also like, I I think Dave England in the first three Jackass movies is so handsome. He had, he, (laughs) my friend did call him now after seeing Jackass Forever. He's like, he said, it's like if Iggy Pop never got sober, which I thought was a very like damning indictment. But yeah, I, I, um, they're all, they're all my boys. It's like having, they feel to me like uncles, you know? Like, I didn't have a lot of rich male role models in my life growing up, and and, and they feel like the closest <laughs> thing I've got. <laughs> oh, dear God.
2: <laughs> well, i got to say, Steve-O, I believe he is uh, sober and, like, living healthy. Never looked oh, most, better. He looks fantastic. Of
3: them, most so, of them are now, like, clean living vegans, which I think is the ultimate kind of, like there's a great moment with Dave England where like something happens to him in the film that I won't spoil. And his first reaction is I'm a vegetarian. Like, <laughs> just kind of like wailed, which is, you know, what I love is that they can put themselves through all this like physical stress. But at the end of the day, they're like dads who, you know, are probably telling their kids like, don't do this. at home," you know.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, fours across from me, the board for me, I, I had a, I had a really, really good time with it. And I think the nostalgia element actually elevated it to me above, uh, previous instalments so uh, yeah that's Jackass Forever which is in cinemas now and apparently the best time you're likely to have in a cinema this year put that on the poster so if you have any thoughts on these films email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies next up we've got um, The Souvenir Part 2
0: Hold up
3: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
2: The eagerly awaited sequel to Joanna Hogg's semi-autobiographical The Souvenir. Part two begins where we left off, with film student Julie navigating and processing the loss of her corsic older lover, while also pushing against the constraints of the independent film scene in 1980s London. Through Hogs's lens, we follow Julie's journey through fleeting relationships, living with fretful parents, and ultimately her attempt to come to terms with her grief through the singular power of cinema. Adam, so Souvenir Part One was the subject of A Little White Lies issue, uh, issue 80. Um, did we, working on that issue give you greater appreciation of these films?
1: It was, yeah. Um, uh, well, trying to cast my mind back now to pre-pandemic uh, times, it was a really good issue to work on. I mean, it, 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 I always feel like we're kind of blowing our own trumpet when we talk about the magazine on this podcast, but it was it was a really good one. I mean, we did a whole thing around British cinema, and it was a it was an interesting process, kind of surveying all of that. And you know, we'll we'll touch on this later, but kind of looking back at the likes of Derek Jarman and, and others um and it was obviously great to speak to the, the kind of cast I, I can't remember who I don't know if, whether it was you Hannah who interviewed Joanna and Anna Swinton Byrne I spoke was Sophie. to Sophie it was Sophie of course yeah and and um yeah I spoke to Tom Burke who was who was very charming and lovely as, as you'd imagine um so it certainly gave me uh you know a bit more of a kind of intimate insight into the film and Joanna Hogg's kind of and, although it's semi-autobiographical I think there are more there are certain elements which are more biographical than others, let's say. Um and certainly, you know, as we know, the, the character of, of Anthony is based on a, a very real person in her life. Um, and and so yeah, I think this one, I mean it was filmed I think not long after the first one, but it feels like a long time that we've been waiting for it. Um, and and also, you know, the reception to the first one was such that you just thought, well, this is this is, you know, really um up to the kind of ante and up to the anticipation for this one. Um and it doesn't disappoint. I think it's actually um possibly even even you know better. I think certainly the two films together work just beautifully. I mean as as a kind of companion um to the first one, this this does pick up where the you know the previous film ended. Um so Julie is navigating film school and making her grad film and also obviously dealing with the grief of having lost, um, this, this person, this character in her life who was such a huge influence. Um, it's interesting because Anthony's death from the first film really does cast a shadow over this, but also it's a really, I mean, it could have been more of a kind of downbeat story and focused a, a lot more on that, but it's, it's actually a really, um, I think a really optimistic and, 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 and happy film in some ways. I mean, it's a film about someone really coming of age and discovering a lot about themselves. I think through this grieving process and through this process of, you know, you know, just, just growing up and, and living her life and having these little flings and, and forming closer friendships and bonds with the people around her. Um. So, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really, I can imagine it being quite a cathartic experience for Hog having made it but i think from a viewer's point of view it's also quite cathartic you spent quite a lot of time with these characters and to kind of see the maturity and the, the development of them in in this film is is really uh, really lovely um and yeah i, I mean i'm str- honestly struggling to think of a kind of a couple of films a pair of films which i've liked more by any british director of the last kind of you know 20 odd years um i think it's that good i think it's like a really really special special achievement
2: yeah i'd be interested to kind of see because i'm sure it's going to happen um somebody just playing them back to back because it does to me very much feel like a single piece like it is a part two rather than a rather than a souvenir two.
1: yeah um, it is i mean the only the only thing i'd say with that is it is interesting how there are there are elements which are you know i've touched upon this being quite a kind of optimistic film It's really funny. I mean, as much as it's quite mm-hmm. sad in moments, I think it's much more generous with the, with the, you know, from a kind of script writing point of view, it's much more generous with that, the, the humor of it, the, um, I guess the, yeah the, the honesty of the situation as well, but it's, it's, it's written in such a way where, yes, it does compliment and carry on from the first film. And you can totally watch it in isolation as well. I mean, I would say you, you would benefit from having watched Souvenir Part One, but I wouldn't say you n- entirely need to. It's it's mm-hmm. definitely like its own thing as well, um, and I think stylistically, even she's kind of doing something a little bit different with this. I mean, there's there's a scene kind of near the end, I guess, which is almost like a, a quite a kind of feverish partial reenactment of the events from the first film. Which, I mean, it's it, it feels very Jarman esque actually in the way it's constructed um she's using the um the 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 kind of film school film studio setting a lot more playing around with that i think it's quite a kind of inventive film in that way um as you're kind of seeing her building this uh this voice i guess or this style of 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 her you know through this grad film through this whole project um and yeah I, just, yeah, I just I just adore this. I think Honest Winton Byrne is 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 phenomenal as well. Um, kind of dealing with so much and and kind of conveying so much, often by doing very little. I think the first film there was a bit more of a sense of like things happening to her and characters around her a lot more dominant with their personalities. And in this one I think she really like comes to the fore and I think Hogg gives her a lot more a lot more kind of space with the character to develop it um and yeah she i mean she's she's great in the first film but she really i mean it'd be really interesting to see what she does from here um i mean she's kind of talked about not necessarily even wanting to continue or pursue an acting career beyond this which would be i think a bit of a shame but she is um she is wonderful in this and and you know you've got the likes of um tilda swinton obviously her her, her mum, um irl who's who's back in this and puts in a great shift again and and uh richard Ioadi is very funny gets a gets a kind of bigger role um there's a whole scene where i mean hog has kind of said he's based on various um real life directors that she encountered um at that at that time but i mean it's, he's quite clearly meant to be a bit of a a, a piss take of um of uh, Julian temple and, and he's made mm. so rich areas character in the film is making this kind of musical comedy drama th- film. And, um, which is, which is clearly a nod to like absolute beginners. Um, which you know famously, was disaster, yeah, fa- famously <laughs> was kind of panned by the critics, and I think didn't didn't do very well at the box office. And so yeah, it's going back to this film, this period in British film where it was really in the doldrums. And it's interesting to see, although Hogg, I, w- I would say it was you know another twenty years before she really you know established herself within that world. It's it's interesting to see where British cinema was then, and and looking at it kind of now through this lens of, of yeah showing, you know, what, what state it was in and how a filmmaker like Hogg has has managed to emerge from it.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting to kind of see a film that has quite an unromanticized view of the sort of struggle of filmmaking in some way, but still is very, like, loving towards it. Uh, and that's something, Hannah, you picked out in your review because you saw it in um, Cannes, and you called it an immaculate study of grief and filmmaking. Um, is that still... <laughs> something you stand by
3: yeah no it feels like a million years ago now but no i think that this is one of the films normally when you go to a festival there's always a few films that you watch at the time and you're like oh yeah this is really good and then you get home and you're like oh that was fine i guess but <laughs> the souvenir part two, luckily is one of those films that i saw it in i think just before i went to Cannes, so uh, probably early july and still it like i think it is one of the best films of last year probably one of the best films of the decade um i mean i know we've got eight more years of the decade but you know i'm I'm gonna plant my flag in it now and say that i think it will still be up there and i do i think it's very interesting that one of the criticisms constantly leveled against joanna hogg is that um oh she's you know she comes from a very privileged world and she makes films about these very privileged characters and I think I mentioned it when we did the souvenir, but there's that wonderful line from um, uh, Stuart Lee about um, archipelago. (laughs) Uh, Me me trying to pronounce that word archipelago. And um, he says it's a disappointing film about posh people having a bad holiday. (laughs) Or, yeah, or something like that. A slightly disappointing holiday. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah, so it was I think it was a it was a, a boring film, but yeah, posh you having a slightly disappointing holiday. Um which I think is a very funny way to describe it. But also, um, there are people that genuinely that is their big serious criticism of uh, Joanna Hogg, that she's um she's posh and so she can only make films about posh people and only posh people can appreciate them. As someone who doesn't come from um that sort of world, I really kind of take umbrage with the idea that you have to see your exact world life experience reflected on the screen to be able to relate to it and um I think when you haven't seen yourself represented on screen you you kind of i'm you know sure other people will be able to attest to this you find yourself in different films and um although it is amazing to see experience is represented and to see uh, filmmakers coming through who do come from all walks of life and I absolutely want to see more of that I do think that to say the souvenir is only about um this little poor little rich girl kind of having a bit of a miserable time in her Knightsbridge flat is quite disingenuous because not only does she go through quite a lot in the film (laughs) um I do think that the more you zero in as a filmmaker about your experience the more you kind of open up for other people to be able to see parts of themselves or parts of their life within and I think that kind of simmering depression throughout um, part two you know Julie's lost the this man who she adored despite kind of all the things he put her through Um, that I think is an incredibly Relatable thing and an incredibly um, special thing to see on screen. That kind of willingness that Hogg has to really like lay her soul on the line here and show us this woman who is trying to unravel an incredibly traumatic event and spends a lot of the film trying to kind of contact um, Anthony's friends and try and just like get some closure about who he actually was and if their relationship meant the same to him as it clearly did to her. I think that is kind of what I found so beautiful and so poignant about the film. And there is, on the flip side, it's a wonderful kind of um, critique of the rigidity of the um, film industrial complex. So Julie is at this, uh, she's at art school making, um, you know, studying film, making films. And the pushback she kind of faces from her, tutors is very funny to watch and they're kind of like "Mm, we don't really get it we don't think you should do that and I do think if I was one of Joanna Hogg's old teachers watching it I'd feel a bit embarrassed (laughs) because it's clear that there was some sort of like um disconnect maybe and it's interesting to think that I think someone like her who most people would consider a kind of art house filmmaker um You think now, like, well, I can't believe she was facing that kind of pushback because she's a genius. You know, she makes these beautiful films. And that idea of, like, staying true to your vision and artistic honesty, contrasting, like, so beautifully with the kind of lies that she's been sold by this man who she was deeply in love with, really kind of... um, struck me within part two and it all builds to this crescendo where you're not quite sure what is real and what is in her head in this amazing um kind of climactic scene in the film which i won't say any more about but yeah it takes you on this like extended sequence and it is just like kind of one of the most beautiful things i think i've seen in recent memory and there's such a kind of confidence to honours performance which i think in the first one she does feel like a little like a little bit like a lost little lamb and she is frustrating because she's posh and she doesn't really know she's born and she does take money from her parents without any intention of paying it back but you see the kind of um mature maturation period in this film and all these lovely exchanges she has with richard iwadi's character throughout the film they kind of drift back into each other's lives and have these like chance meetings. And he always just has kind of the right thing to say. And yeah. I guess a, a little like Jackass, I think we all need that kind of figure in our lives who just, you know, offers you a kind of not necessarily like, um, comfort. He's not a particularly comforting character, but just the, that kind of like wisdom, um, and I think, yeah, that that's what I take away from it. Is like it, it. It feels like to all young women, especially, I'm sure that there are young men who can relate as well, it does kind of feel like a a no matter what you're going through, you will get through it type of message is what I get out of it.
2: So, Adam, I'm wondering, um, this is film that kind of seems to have such an intense love that is coming from this quite small section, it feels, of... Uh, of the world like this uh the first one was uh what little white lies film of the year this one it sounds like a, a good contender for 2022 sight and sound to both films top their polls but it's it doesn't seem to like ripple that hard outside of that world like you know this is not a film that gets these films don't have huge box offices and you know that it didn't win awards that can it doesn't you know it's not in the lineup for like big oscars or anything like that why do you think it is that it seems to have this kind of niche appeal
1: i i suspect in in, in some sense although you know yes it has its fans or it, or its um its supporters among the kind of cr- critics and everything but i mean much in the same way that the British film industry is making films like Absolute Beginners, as as kind of shown here. We, we, you know that is very much kind of still the. It feels like that's very much still the focus, and if you're looking at the kind of the things that get pushed and get, um, you know, more more kind of awards and. I mean, looking at looking ahead at, at what's been kind of winning or being nominated for awards for this award season, things like Souvenir aren't really mentioned that much. I mean, it's potentially a less commercially. Um, exciting movie or appealing movie in, 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 in that regard and um, but I you know I think Joanna Hogg is perfectly happy continuing in her in 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 you know in her kind of lane and you know more more full basically I think the, the British public have the opportunity to see these films and whether you know it's not going to not a film that is going to be a huge box office hit and that's that's fine i mean that's it's not the be all and end all right i mean no. she she's able to kind of keep making these films her way and that's that's the the really big statement i think of this film and actually just to touch on the class issues it's interesting and quite telling that in the first film she's she's kind of talking about julie's talking about making this film about is it like sunderland dockers or something and and there is a legitimate question posed to her of like well why 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 do you want to why are you interested in this um this kind of working class milieu. Why? Why are you wanting to kind of focus on that? And she doesn't really have an answer to it. And in this one, it 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 requires that that lived experience for her to actually find her voice, find something to say, and understand that. Oh, okay, this is the kind of filmmaker I I could be. Um, and yeah, I I you know I think it, this is the sort of film that couldn't necessarily be made by a young filmmaker, someone coming through film school or, or or freshly emerged from it who would be given the, the kind of faith and trust. I mean, much like in, in this film where as, as Hannah said, there is, there is this kind of pushback from the, 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 the gatekeepers as it were at the art school where, where she's attending. Um, I think she, she's kind of had to prove herself and it's been a, it's been a kind of slow burn of, of a career so far for Joanna Holt, because really, although we talked about archipelago and her earlier films did, did well, well received by critics, but you know, no nowhere near nowhere on the same scale as this. Um, and yet even, even this, you know, she's, she's kind of within, you know, we're operating within a, a, a kind of completely different orbit to, to kind of the bigger, you know, the big, the big, the, the bigger blockbuster films that we're, that we're kind of talking about often on here. Um but I, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's it's one of those things. It's just like there's there's certain films which are kind of um, you don't you, you don't really kind of a, appreciate what they're doing um, and, until until much later. I think this is a film we'll we'll look back on in in years to come. And there's plenty of films which make a lot more money and have a bigger impact in the short term that will be kind of forgotten about. Um, so I think yeah, that's that's kind of Hogg's Hog's legacy in my eyes, anyway.
2: Yeah, well, when Belfast wins Best Picture, we can all be furious <laughs> together. That <for> this. <laughs> I, I, uh, so
1: I, think a, I think there's it. a. I think there's a place. Sorry to just interject. I think there's a place in this in this world for for Belfast and the souvenirs is the thing, you know. Um, and I don't necessarily think we. I think we have a tendency to kind of co- constantly pit films against each other, and and you know, ultimately, it is a cutthroat industry, and there is a degree of that, but. Um, as I, as I say, I think the, the lesson from this is like you want younger filmmakers to be given the opportunities to have the career that Hawk has had and kind of develop the way she has had uh, or has been able to. Um, and, and hopefully that, that will be a kind of lesson from this and people will kind of pay more attention to that.
2: Well, we, we can only hope. Uh, so scores, what would you give it in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect?
1: I'm I'm going like fives across the board for this. I think I think you know, looking back at the souvenir, the part one, it's almost incomplete without this film. Mm. Um and I think this, this kind of so beautifully wraps up this this chapter within the character's life. Um and yeah, I can't I can't wait to kind of revisit both films and and I think I will revisit them many times um over the coming years. So yeah, top top scores for me.
3: Hannah, what about you? Um, I think I'm going to go four, five, five. The four in anticipation is purely because I was concerned about the idea of doing a part two. Um, I do think, yeah, I was a bit... Especially because there were quite a few casting changes with Rob Pattinson was meant to be in it but then had to drop out to do the Batman. So, yeah, I was just a bit worried. Um, But I shouldn't have been because it is um a wonderful film that I think... Um. I don't know, I, I go back and forth on whether or not I like this more than the first one or not, but um, it doesn't really matter. I think they're both wonderful films. Uh, so yeah, five in the enjoyment and five in retrospect. Well, uh, probably four,
2: four, five for me. Um, I did feel that I missed Tom Burke's presence a little bit, um, but um, probably that's just because I can't get enough of him. I think he's one of the most kind of compelling male British actors uh, currently working. Uh, so, yeah, minor quibble there. But um, five in retrospect, I think it it, it I think Masterpiece isn't too isn't uh, being hyperbolic. I think this is kind of actually kind of a perfect film and a perfect expression of like filmmaking when you let go of like the expectations of like and the structures of what you think a film has to be, what you think a se- sequel has to be. So, yeah, loved it. Uh, yeah so that is in cinemas now and i don't think you can get a more ringing endorsement than uh, than, uh we've just given it so in film club it's last of england Released in 1987 with The Last of England, Derek Jarman offers up his own unique perspective on Britain. His thoughts, memories, and fantasies assembled into a varied collage of styles to reflect on a dark and gloomy take on the effects of Thatcherism on society, with a young Tilda Swinton in her second ever role. Uh, so, this film is taking on themes of national identity, particularly during Thatcherite Britain. But, uh, Hannah, do you think that any of that is still resonating with our kind of present? collective nightmare
3: (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah um i shudder to think what jarman would make of the current state of things um but i imagine he would not be happy with it (laughs) um (laughs) yeah this was quite i i had no idea what i was getting myself into with this and i watched it last night after jackass so it was quite a tonal shift for me um but yeah it's a very i think compared to some of his more famous films um i'm thinking of um caravaggio i guess which probably is his most famous film um this is much more impressionistic and kind of there isn't really a plot um it's more of a kind of collection of images and um you have this narration kind of going on throughout the top and there's bits of poetry um that nigel terry reads we get some of the hollow men and some of alan ginsberg's how which i very much enjoyed um and then all these like quite disconcerting images of skulls and fire and ashes and uh there's a, a wonderful scene of um uh, a, a, a couple having sex on a um a union jack and i thought to myself like wow this episode this episode of truth in movies has probably got the most like male dicks than any other episode we've ever recorded. <laughs> um, thrilled to be guest hosting for such a, for such such a, a momentous week. occasion. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean there really it's um, there really has I don't think that there's anybody like Jarman making films today. I don't think there's been anyone since him. He really was a kind of singular Force, and I think you can definitely, obviously, you know, um, he was a massive influence and mentor on Joanna Hogg's work, and I believe he gave her or lent her his first her first camera to make a film. Uh, they met in a patisserie Valerie in Soho, which I think is just a lovely detail. Um, you know, and nowadays it's like a oh, patisserie Valley like chain store, faux French patisserie, and it's like, well, actually, it gave us kind of um, two pioneering filmmakers. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you see a lot of The Last of England in the final bit of The Souvenir Part 2 where there's a kind of similarly impressionistic scene, maybe a little bit less um, terrifying than The Last of England because it really mm. is like quite um, frightening in places. It reminds me a lot of... And I guess it was around about the same time. Um, uh, the name of... I can't remember the name of it. The, the film set in sheffield and it's like imagining a post-apocalyptic uh post yes threads even though threads is like more you know there's a there's a plot and things Mm -hmm. it's just that kind of sense of like total um uh despair that i think thatcherism fostered in a lot of filmmakers and i think we'll probably see some of that coming through in the next few years in british filmmaking thanks to a the pandemic and b the tories um or the other way around. I think they're both probably equally important. But yeah. um, Well, that's a silver lining. (laughs) Yeah, well, if if anything, we know that um, really shitty political times can give us great art. And I think, yeah, The Last of England is very solid proof of that.
2: Yeah, and uh, this was um, just after he was diagnosed as HIV positive. Obviously, the AIDS epidemic was at its height during this time. I think of this film, you could really feel this you know, uh, you know, almost primal anger that he has to the world around him. Um, Adam, are you a fan of Derek Jarman's work?
1: Yeah, big big time. I mean, I think he's probably one of the most underappreciated British artists of the last century. I mean his his influence I think is 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 easy to understate because it's not immediately obvious. Like I mean, that anecdote about Joanna Hawk obviously you can see aspects of his work within hers but I think just as a kind of um, as as a cultural force you know his his influence spreads pretty far and wide um, and and this you know a, a, as you said it's kind of his riposte to Thatcherism I mean it's interesting it was released the same year as with Ned and I I think you take those two films and you kind of get a good idea of what what the kind of mood was at the time but um, I think this this deserves just as kind of lofty occult status um it it, yeah it's quite an angry film i mean there's a there's an amazing section in the middle which is all kind of fire and brimstone and uh you know kind of like devilish pixie-ish imagery of, of of kind of some you know this this figure kind of twirling and and it's there's something quite kind of unsettling and maniacal about it. And it's, it, I mean, he's borrowing a lot from kind of Kenneth Anger and and, and, and other kind of filmmakers of that era. Um, but I think what he's ultimately saying here about his his own situation, his own condition, I mean, he made a, a, a more kind of overt statement on HIV and the AIDS crisis a few years after this with Blue, which is also his kind of homage to Eve Klein. Um but no, I think I think there's so much here textually, subtextually that, that's going on that kind of re- really gives you an idea of what, you know, what a kind of um, incisive uh, artist he was. Um, and yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a really good, I was watching, there's a, a great old face-to-face interview he did in, with the BBC in the kind of early 90s. And he's kind of talking about not so much this film, but his a- HIV diagnosis and uh, and, you know, it, just being very kind of open and honest about it, and wanting there to be more of a of a of a conversation, more of a dialogue around it. Um, so I, I think it's all on YouTube. It's only kind of forty five minutes or something. So I think definitely recommend seeking that out because it helps to kind of frame and contextualize not only this film and his his other work, like Caravaggio as well, but just kind of who yeah who he was as an artist basically, and what what he kind of um, what he kind of thought about the world, especially Britain at that at that time.
2: And like what a showcasing also of the kind of raw performance art skills of Tilda Swinton, who is just absolutely mesmerizing in this. And it's such a strange contrast with this very sweet, naturalistic, very warm performance that she's giving in The Souvenir. And in this, she's kind of, it's almost beyond acting. She just seems to be, you know, it's almost, it's dance. It's, uh, you know, just, it's a, she seems to be tapping into something that is really quite extraordinary and looking over all of the things that she's done in her career I I think she really is one of our great living actors and I mean she would be very annoyed I think if we said that she was English because I believe she's you know identifies as Scottish shall we say
1: (laughs) no but you're right she she's almost a kind of divine presence in this isn't she she's she's quite quite extraordinary
2: yeah I mean it's 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 very obvious to see with something like this why Derek Jarman and Joanna Hogg have kind of you know sort her out as being uh really someone that could you know could do so many different things and, and is that rare talent um hannah is there anything else you want to say
3: uh we also kind of should mention that there is a jarman retrospective which is opening or has just opened i think at home in manchester uh it's celebrating what would have been jarman's 80th birthday and it's going to be on until the 10th of march so They've got, I think they're screening basically everything. So, you know, his all his features and shorts and there's loads of intros and uh, Q&As, people like Francis Lee and Mark Cousins and uh, his uh, um, Jarman's producing partner, James McKay. And there's a big exhibition on at Manchester Art Gallery as well. So if you're thinking about going up to Manchester or if you're a local and want to kind of fit in, uh, rarely seen uh, films as well, they're not screened all that often, uh, definitely check it out. Yeah,
2: I'm definitely check it out. Um, if there was uh, ever a place to see this uh, sort of thing, Manchester feels like the exact right location. Um, I say that because <laughs> I'm married to someone from Manchester and I absolutely love it as a city. But yeah, one of those rare <laughs> filmmakers that seems equally fitting in a gallery as, uh, as he does in a cinema. So... Um, if you have any thoughts on these films you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at lwlies. Next week Michael will be back and we will be looking at Mark Wahlberg and Tom Holland having adventures in the jungle in Uncharted and a pair of amazing animated documentary with Flea and Film Club will be looking at what's with the ship. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth and Moves is hosted by me, Leila Lateef, and my guests this week were Adam Woodward and Hannah Straw. This podcast was produced by Jake Cunningham, Ellie Aitken, Harold McShield, and was edited by Steph Watts.